and the saving power of your gospel. And we do pray that we would hear it afresh this morning, that we would not be hardened to it, not be too used to it, but that your grace would capture us again anew today. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Oh, come on now. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. You're awake. Very good. We're going to pick back up our journey again with Jesus and his disciples this morning. We're going to keep close company with them as they make their way around Palestine. Jesus, the original itinerant preacher, teacher, the rabbi, messiah, his pupils. That's a big theme in Mark. Uh, Jesus being a rabbi, the rabbi, messiah that he is. So today's passage is one that we know very, very well, I suspect, right? The rich young ruler. The topic is discipleship, and it's an uncompromising passage that I think Bonhoeffer probably loved. He probably talks about it in Cost of Discipleship, but I didn't go and check, but I suspect he does. Um, to follow Jesus means to deny oneself, take up your cross, to imitate his self-sacrifice. Losing your life to save it, right? That's one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. But more specifically, Jesus goes after what we withhold from God. And in this case, it's our stuff and our wealth, but everybody's rich in something, right? Jesus talks about money a lot. I've said that before. Ever notice how the one, his favorite prime example in his parables is usually what? Money. Possessions. That's his favorite thing. He talks about money a lot, more than even heaven and hell. And the biblical view on money and possessions is that it's something we joyfully steward rather than protectively own. And this is true of the entirety of our life. It's a gift that comes from God, and it's kind of on loan to us, if you want to think of it that way. So what will we do with the talents, to use Jesus' words, that God gives us? Will we hoard it as our own? Will we steward it with joy? Where your treasure is, what's the rest of that? Where your heart is. That's right. So do we own our stuff? Does it own us? I mean, I could go on and on, but you, you get the point. Let's talk a little bit about the rich young ruler. This story is in all three synoptic gospels, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which means it's mighty important. And between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what I've done is kind of gathered together a sketch of this man. Um, so let me compile that and give it to you just so you can tell you what we know about him going into the story. One, he's rich. Rich young ruler. Follows suit, doesn't it? Uh, which means he's in a very different social class than Jesus and the disciples. Lest we forget, Jesus is poor. Okay? Jesus is poor. He's a laborer. He's a carpenter. Even Matthew, the tax collector, became poor to follow Jesus. And Jesus and his disciples don't run. They simply just do not run in the same crowd as the rich young ruler. They don't. So this is a very stark contrast. There's a divide here. This man comes from the upper echelon of society. Lest we forget, there's no middle class in this day and age. There's poor and there's rich. This guy's rich. They're poor. He's young. That's the second thing. We don't know how young he is exactly, but the text does make mention of him. So there's some there's mention of that. So there's some gap between himself and Jesus and the 12. So maybe, perhaps we can think of him in his early 20s. That's probably a pretty good guess. Thirdly, he's a ruler. He's a man of some importance, some earthly power, okay, some authority. He has some worldly respect. His life is quite different, again, than the life of uh, the Lord and their, his disciples. His life is one of stability. His life is one of security. And his life is one where the world admires him. Okay? So you kind of get the picture. Those are the basics. Uh, that's where we start. But more is going to emerge as the dialogue unfolds. So let's dive into Mark 10, 17 through 31. <clears throat> Pardon me. It begins, it says, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, and just to clarify what we're talking about here, Mark is letting us know that Jesus is beginning to head for Jerusalem. 
i.e., Jesus is beginning to head for the cross, which plays into this theme of discipleship and the cost of following Jesus, as we shall soon see. So he kind of tells us that to tip us off. And as he was setting out on his journeys, beginning to set his face towards Jerusalem, the rich young ruler comes, and you know this, he comes and he falls at Jesus' knees, and he sought Jesus out. And pretty enthusiastically, we can see. He's run up, he falls at his feet. This is a sign of reverence, deference to Jesus, showing that he, he submits to him in some sense as a spiritual superior. He's an earnest young man. He's pious, he's moral, he's serious, I would say. He's not like the scribes of the Pharisees, is he? He's not coming here to trap Jesus with questions, to try to bait him. And he's spiritually mature enough to see that he lacks something and that perhaps this rabbi named Jesus can help him. And I find him likable. And he has a doozy of a question for us, okay? Good teacher or good rabbi, either one, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? That's no small question. That's, one of the, that's, that's, that's a biggie. He doesn't know it yet, but the question he's asking is, Jesus, what do I need to do to be your disciple? The young man wants to, catch the word, inherit eternal life. Not something that can be bought, an inheritance. It's something that is bestowed. He believes eternal life to be an inheritance, something passed from parent to child. And he's not wrong. Okay, It's actually true. Eternal life is passed from God to us, his children. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The blessings of the father's house are extended to both sons, okay? An inheritance. But to receive the inheritance, you obviously have to be part of the family. So what does it mean to follow Jesus and be part of his family if we kind of follow the thinking? Let's find out the response to this most excellent question. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And I think Jesus comes back here with some divine irony. Um, Why would he say that? (laughs) I think because it speaks to his identity as the Messiah. Jesus is God, and he's putting the question of, who do you say that I am, back on the table. So follow the logic. If God alone is good, this is simple logic, right? If God alone is good, and you're calling me good, then who am I? Okay, God. You know the law, and by that he means the Ten Commandments here. He says, you know the law. And Jesus goes on to recite the commandments that focus on love of neighbor. Underscore, underscore, underscore. He only quotes the latter portion of the Decalogue, which is in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. Now, this is an expected and orthodox Jewish answer. It really is. No surprises. Jesus has essentially asked the rich young ruler, have you loved your neighbor? That's what he's asking him. And to go back to that inheritance family language, Jesus defines his family as those who do the will of God, And by quoting these commandments that deal with human relations, Jesus teaches the man that loving God is directly related to love of neighbor. Rich young ruler, he's essentially saying, have you loved your neighbor? That's the market belonging to my father's household. Now the rich young ruler says he's kept all these since he was young. Now he really rushes past what Jesus says a little too quickly. I think his use starts to show here. There's a little bit of, uh, yeah, 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 I've done that. I've, I've loved my neighbor. Okay, on a behavioral level, maybe he's kept the law, but has he grappled with his heart yet? Any sinful thoughts, rich young ruler, ever? If you have one of those commandments, did you ever want to? Has he truly loved his neighbor as himself? Well, outwardly, maybe so. He seems to think so. And there's not a sense of uh, being false there. I think he really believes it. But there's this, there's this pesky inward breach. Remember, he knows he lacks something. Otherwise, he has come to Jesus out of false pretenses, which the text tells us he has, and he's, he's asking an honest question, okay? 
But let's be honest here. Let's think about this man's life. Here's a young man who probably never lacked anything in a physical sense, right? Not tempted to steal or kill. Maybe that's because you've never needed anything badly enough to do it or to be tempted to do it. You haven't encountered dire, desperate circumstances. His basic human needs and then some are taken care of, okay? When you're rich, when you're well-fed, when you're well-provided for, when you're well-housed, and so on and so forth, why steal? What if your family doesn't have enough to eat? Then maybe you're truly tempted. There's an old riddle. See if anybody knows the answer to it. What does a rich man lack that a poor man has in abundance? What does a rich man lack that a poor man has in abundance? Any ideas? Nothing. Bam. Gold star. Very nice. Nothing. I've kept these commandments since I was young. Something inside the rich young ruler rings hollow. And Jesus is going to go after this man's heart and just lay it bare. He's all about revealing our hearts to us, isn't he? Think of Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. The word of God, alive, active, sharper than any double-edged sword, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden. Well, Jesus, the living word of God, is going to go after this young man's heart. This is the great physician at work giving the spiritual diagnosis. Anyone else notice that this exchange between Jesus and this young man is a little different than the ones with the Sadducees and the Pharisees? It's a bit different, isn't it? Jesus sees his heart. He knows he's actually seeking, so he engages him. This man isn't trying to trap Jesus. It's very interesting. The text makes it real, it goes to great lengths to say that Jesus looks at him and loves him. Now, when it says he looks at him, you need to see this as a very earnest, attentive gaze. It's intentional, it's in the eyes. If I'm looking at Fred, I'm not looking around and talking to somebody else. I'm looking at him saying, Fred, I'm speaking to you, okay? Right in the eyes, engage. Jesus looks at the man, and it says he loves him. He's the only person in Mark's gospel singled out as being loved by Jesus, this man. Jesus has compassion, and he loves him enough to tell him the truth. He goes after this young man's heart by going after his stuff. He goes after his pocketbook, and he loved him, Enough to take a wrecking ball to this idol of wealth. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Here it is, okay? You showed up here hoping for an answer today for that hollowness inside you. You ready? Here it is. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then you'll have real treasure that moth and rust can't destroy. Then, notice the, notice the order here. Then come and follow me. This is the cost of discipleship. It is. And as we shall see, the love of God for this man doesn't have the effect we'd hope for. There's a sad irony here. And God's love can, I mean, tell me you know this. Have you had times in your life where God's love kind of rattles you, rocks you? Have you ever been in that place? Doesn't always feel like love, does it? But God comes and he loves us. It beckons us to repentance. But it doesn't always feel like love. So God doesn't always woo, sometimes he disrupts. And that is still a mark of his love. One thing you lack, Jesus tells him. And you know what happens next. The young man is crestfallen. He's crushed. The language is strong here. He's greatly troubled. It says he goes away grieving sorrowfully. Okay, And he goes away because he has a lot of stuff. He's very wealthy. He's not willing to sacrifice and fully commit his life to following Jesus. Interesting note. This is the only man in the entire New Testament that goes sorrowfully from the presence of Jesus. Generally, people come to Jesus very sad and in need. They meet him, but they usually go away joyfully, not so with him. So this is a difficult and tragic and ironic case study. 
This is a big ouch, because what Jesus does as the great physician, he comes in and he puts his finger on that one area. Does it hurt here? Yikes. You ever had a doctor do that? Some of you have. I hear the chuckling. What about here? No, no. Ow. Okay, Jesus goes and puts his finger on that one area. Wealth is the rich young ruler's Isaac, what he loved best and what he loved most. Possessions are his golden calf. And here's what Jesus is saying here. Hear this loud and clear. If you really loved your neighbors yourself, you would already be using your wealth in a different way. If you loved your neighbor, you would already be using your wealth in a different way. Notice the rich young ruler believes he's kept all the commandments, but he's missed something huge here, and that's his lack. This passage really brings about the greatest commandment into sharp focus. Remember that? When Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment, he essentially says, love God with the whole of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. He will not let us separate those two. You can't. You can't separate love of God from love of neighbor. You can't say, I'll take the first five commandments, but the other five I'm going to kind of pass on. Or maybe I'll take the last five, but the first five are a little demanding. Mm, Jesus won't, he won't let us do it. Love of God is tied to love of neighbor. They work together. Jesus goes on to say it's exceedingly difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say impossible, but he did say very difficult. Thus, the many New Testament cautions against pursuing wealth. Having wealth isn't sinful. Pursuing it is. And having it is a great responsibility. It can be a stumbling block and a barrier. That's why the humble, the lowly, the little ones find entry to the kingdom far easier for that very reason. Now, at this point, everybody's stunned. Uh, parentheses, but Jesus, uh, he's not surprised. Uh, he's again defying everybody's expectations. He's taken their world and turned it upside down. The disciples too, they're stupefied. Here is a great, I mean, here's the picture. Here's a great, moral, devout God. He has a lot going for him. He has a searching heart. What? So the disciples are dumbstruck. They really are. Despite the legacy of the biblical prophets, many people still view the wealthy, especially blessed by God. Now, isn't it a good thing we don't fight that in our day and age? <laughs> Insert tongue firmly in cheek. Uh, so Jesus repeats himself, and he adds children, which I love because it ties into that inheritance language, that family language. Children, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom. The camel, that surly and large animal of Palestine, probably the largest that they knew of, on land at least, in the eye of the needle, something so very small. It's easier to perform that miracle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. And this causes some unrest in the disciples' ranks. They were pretty stirred up to begin with. Now they're kind of dumbstruck. They were dumbstruck. Now they're really confused. They're astounded. They're overwhelmed. Thunderstruck is a really good word for it. Their description of their amazement here isn't positive. <laughs> Why? What's so striking to them in this? Well, okay, Jesus... If this man who's commandments, okay, who's devout, who's a man of power, who's a man of authority, who's a man of success, who's young, who holds great promise, if he can't be saved, well, who can be? In other words, subtext, Jesus, this man has everything. If he can't secure eternal life, what about the rest of us? Now, pay dirt. Now we're there. Now we're really there. Jesus looks at them, same word for how he looked at the rich young ruler, same word, very intently, right in the eyes. Men and women can't save themselves. Your works won't save you. Adherence to the law won't save you. Your parents' religion, which you inherited, can't save you. Man does not have the ability. Only God does. 
As it turns out, the rich young ruler was asking the wrong question. He was asking, what must I do to have eternal life? He's trying to earn something. He's trying to earn his way into it. You can't earn an inheritance, can you? You can't. Salvation can't be attained by our efforts. It's received by faith as something we don't deserve. It's pure gift, pure gift. The better question is this. What must God do for me to inherit eternal life? And that leads us straight here to the cross, to the scandal of grace. Who then can be saved with men? It's impossible, but not so with God. Not so. Peter predictably pipes up like a gale force wind. I love this. But Lord, we've left everything to follow you. Maybe there's jealousy here, indignation, probably a whole mixture of feelings. Shock. Is Peter right? Uh, Yeah, actually he is. Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus does not refute this. The disciples have sacrificed more than the rich young ruler to follow Jesus. Peter left his nets. They've left fathers, mothers, family. Jesus, do you see what we've given up for you? That's what Peter's asking, in a sense. Jesus seems to affirm what Peter says, and he speaks to a larger truth. Yeah, Peter, you, you have left everything to follow me, and every single person gives up everything to follow me, whatever their everything happens to be, big or small. Think of Mark 12, 42, the poor widow who comes, she puts in two small copper coins into the offering. You couldn't, there was nothing smaller. Think of it like giving a penny. It says that she gave the most because she gave all that she had. She gave everything. I find something very reassuring in Jesus' reply to Peter. Because essentially, this is verses 29 to 31, if you're trying to track with me. It essentially says, you're right. (laughs) There is a cost. You'll give up everything to follow me. It will be hard. But Jesus does add, but it's not all loss. Not all lost. There are rewards in this life and the life to come, and this isn't prosperity gospel nonsense. Please don't hear that. There are spiritual rewards that outweigh our trials and our sacrifices. There is an eternal life with God and others that starts here and extends into the age to come. Maybe this will help. I'm going to let Eugene Peterson help us out. Hear how he renders verses 29 to 31. This is the message. Uh, Jesus said, mark my words, no one who sacrifices houses, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. They'll get it all back, but multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, but also in troubles. And then the bonus of eternal life, exclamation point. This is the once again, the great reversal. Many who are first will end up last and the last first homes, places of respite and provision, family members, brothers, sisters, mothers, children. This is a picture of the body of Christ, what he's talking about. And fields and land. I wonder if Jesus is alluding to a mission field that we inherit. Perhaps so. What you've given up is nothing in comparison to what you're going to receive. And Jesus is not talking about things money can buy. It's not what he's talking about. Only things that can be given from his hand. Only the inheritance that can come from a heavenly father. Things not owned, but things received, right? Things stewarded. So if we hear this is, here's the stuff we get to own and have because we follow Jesus in an earthly sense. We've missed the boat so badly, so badly. These are the deeper riches that reveal themselves as we follow Jesus in obedience with the whole of our lives. There are things in the gospel, and there are things in the spiritual life where, you know, until you go all in, don't expect to see the fruit unless you go all in. Don't expect to go, Lord, where's this, 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 and this when you're holding on to all this stuff? 
there's things that when we begin to move to, towards Jesus in obedience, there's something of the floodgates opening. And there's a way that he blesses us that is fairly amazing to watch. It's not always a worldly blessing, but um, it's a really amazing thing to watch how he meets us in our obedience. Um, inheritance, let's go back to that. Eternal life is about belonging to a new family. It's not about earning something, right? Leaving and following Jesus, as Peter says the disciples have done, brings us into a new family, okay? And though there are troubles and persecutions, there are blessings that come with it as well in this life and in the world to come. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll end here. I've got three different questions for us. And I encourage you to write them down because these are ones that I have to chew on. I don't have an immediate answer. If the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and gives you that answer, write on. Write it down and chew on it this week. But you may find that you need to come back to these. Some of you thought this would be a tithing sermon. It's not. It's bigger than that. I think all of us are rich in something, if not in money. So questions. Uh, firstly, uh, love of God, as I said before, and love of neighbor can't be separated. So here's the question. Where has your closed fist kept you from living out the greatest commandment? Okay? Where has your closed fist kept you from living out the great commandment? Love God with all of your heart, soul, spirit, mind, everything, and love your neighbors yourself. You can't pick one or the other, right? Can't pick a few of the commandments, can't cherry pick them. They all come together. Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room here. It's a very demanding, uncompromising passage we have today. So where has your close fist kept from living out the greatest commandment? That's one. Secondly, and this really builds off and is more specific, what's your Isaac? What's your golden calf? Okay? What's that area of your life where you've bolted the door shut and you said, God, no trespassing, mine. You know that? Do you have no-fly zones with God? Everybody have those? Where you, even if you haven't articulated it yet? There are areas with God where we basically say, mm-mm, don't touch that. Don't touch that. That's mine. Okay? So what is your golden calf? What's your Isaac? It might be your money. I don't know. could be. Uh, it's time to lay it down. It's time to follow Jesus with two open hands so that the world may come to know him via your open hands, via your open heart, maybe via your open pocket, pocketbook. I don't know. Possible. So that's two. What's your golden calf? Okay. Three, and I find this hopeful that Jesus alludes to this, it's not all loss. The third question is basically, where do you see God's blessings? Where do you see God's blessings? Where, how can you take stock of what God gives? Okay. We'll have to look with spiritual eyes here. We can't look with worldly eyes. Because you won't find the right stuff. You'll focus on the wrong things. Where has God blessed you? It's been said that there are no orphans in the kingdom of God. I love that. Because you inherit brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and spiritual grandmas and granddads and all this stuff. Where have you inherited family? And some of us go, well, some of the family I'd like to disinherit. But <laughs> uh, that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> but seriously, where has God blessed you? Where are those blessings, okay? Amen and amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.